Thanks for checking out this message from Radiant Life Church. Grab your Bible, a pad of paper, and a pen. Let's dive in. Good morning. My name is Josh. I am the Spiritual Formations Pastor here at Radiant Life Church. Glad I could be with you. <laughs> and uh, as we continue our series, Mark. Uh, all summer, we're going through the book of Mark. And last week, Pastor Ryan kicked us off, and he, he gave us a little bit of Mark chapter 1. Uh, he also gave us a little bit of kind of the, the context for the book of Mark. And I want to hit a couple of those key things here this morning, just by way of review. So we'll be, we'll be spending our time today in Mark chapter 2 or 3, so you can turn there as I'm doing a little bit of this review. If you weren't here last week, maybe this is new information. If you were here last week, maybe you've forgotten. So I just want to go over this real quick. The book of Mark is written by a guy named John Mark, and he, he wrote this somewhere in the 50s, right? There's a little bit of debate over the, over the exact date, so we'll just say somewhere in the 50s. This was the first of the four Gospels that were written. Again, you have those four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This was the first one written. And Mark, as all of the Gospel writers, wrote to a specific audience, and Mark's audience was Romans, right? He wrote to people who were within uh, the context of, of Rome. And his emphasis in his book focuses more on the deeds of Jesus than on the words of Jesus. If you read Matthew, he's got some of these lengthy, you know, kind of sermons that Jesus preached. Mark doesn't do any of those. He's just all about the action. So today we're going we're gonna to jump into Mark chapters 2 and 3. We're going to try to hit both of these chapters today. And I want to give you a fair warning that I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit. Hopefully, by the time we wrap up, it all makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay. But there is some bouncing back and forth. So we'll be in 2 and then we'll be in 3. We'll be in 2 and we'll be in 3. So we're, just, we're kind of doing a little bit of pinball here between these two chapters. The title of this message is Who Times Two? Everybody say, Who Times Two? Hopefully that makes sense here in a little bit. If it doesn't, then I did a really bad job up here today. But as we jump into Mark chapters two and three, I want to introduce a couple of characters that show up all throughout the Gospels. So I need, I need two volunteers uh, here this morning. Otherwise, all right, Derek, you come on down. And you know, I knew Frank, I was like, I'm surprised Frank didn't just come on stage as soon as I got up here, because that's the kind of guy Frank is. All right. <laughs> so we got Frank and Derek. All right, so, so I want to introduce you to a couple. You guys stand right up front here, like right there, right there. So you guys get right up front. So you should, you should actually, that's, that's appropriate. So I want to introduce you to a group of people called the scribes. Derek, you're going to be our scribe today. Everybody say, hi, Derek, the scribe. So, so the scribes show up throughout the gospels and I want to, I want to just give us a little bit of info on, on who they were. So I need you to get a couple of props here, Derek. So first we're going to go ahead and, uh, we're going to throw that on. You just get it to where it stays on there. And then you need, a, you need to grab a couple of other things here. So you grab that, you grab that, and you grab that. If you want to doodle something, that would be totally cool. The first service, this guy, he drew like kind of a cool thing there. So feel free, but no pressure. So the scribes, the scribes, these were people who could read and write, right? That's why, so start, you got to write something because otherwise you make me a liar. Don't make me a liar. So the scribes could read and write. Now, we have a pretty high literacy rate in our culture, right? But first century Palestine, guess what? Not everybody could read or write. 
but you had scribes who could. Like they were, they were educated. They knew what was up. I don't know where they graduated from, but they graduated. They're super smart. <laughs> oh no, this is, you're all right, Frank. You're all right. This is not, this is not going to be bad on you. This is not going to be bad on you. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you just, you volunteer and you don't know what you're getting into. So in the New Testament, when you see the word scribe, that's typically synonymous with somebody who is a religious leader. Now, were all scribes religious leaders? Mm, not necessarily. But when we encounter them in the Newer Testament, that's, that's kind of what they're talking about. These are, are scribes. They can read, the right, and they're involved in the religious system of Judaism. So they're a, they're a religious leader. Now, some of these guys were likely also Pharisees. And Pharisees are the other group that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. So don't worry. It's, it's all right. Scribes and Pharisees get kind of a bad rep, like as you read through scripture, but they weren't all bad. They really weren't. They had a, they had a lot of good things. <clears throat> the other thing with scribes is they were experts in the law. Go ahead and uh, pound that gavel for me a little bit there, Judge Derek. Judge Derek. And just go ahead and throw this, point at somebody and say guilty. Oh, <clears throat> sorry, Ziva. I didn't. I was, <laughs> these guys knew the law. Right? They knew the law. You had a question about the law, they're going to they're gonna go to a scribe because, man, they know it. Odds are a lot of their work is, is writing and rewriting the law. Right? They're studying. They can read it. You have a question, you're like, oh, what about this? I'm going to go to somebody who can actually read and do the research. Right? So I'm, I'm going to a scribe. These are pretty smart guys. Now, the other group that we see often in, in close proximity to the scribes were the Pharisees. Everybody say hi to Frank the Pharisee. Which actually works out from a, from a phonetic standpoint. That, that's that's kind of good. So the Pharisees, they're, they're part of the foundation of rabbinic Judaism. Right? When we read about Jesus, sometimes he's referred to as rabbi, this teacher. Right? This was a, a, kind of a, a system within Judaism where you've got these guys and, and, and not all the rabbis taught exactly the same. They would, they would, kind of, they would look at, at the law and they would say, well, we think this is how we apply it. Right? And you'd have different rabbis with different schools of thought. But they were a huge part of forming that rabbinic tradition within Judaism. Another big thing, I gotta give you some props here, Frank. So your Pharisees, they held oral tradition on level with the Torah. So the Torah, everybody say Torah. It's not the Japanese movie, right? It's not that one. That's a totally different thing. So the Torah is the first five books of our Old Testament. They would refer to this as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is wherein lies the Ten Commandments. This is where you have in the book of Leviticus all of the ceremonial laws. Like, hey, if you've got mold in your tent, this is the way you handle that. Or like, that is, that's all part of the law. Like, this is what it looks like to function as a people devoted to God. Boom, the law. That's the Torah. But in addition to the Torah... The Pharisees subscribed to the belief that when God had Moses up on the mountain giving him the, the law, right, inscribing the law on these tablets, he also just, he told him some other stuff. And then Moses passed that on verbally, and, and this was the oral tradition within Judaism. Now, much later, they had this compiled in written form. This is the Mishnah. Everybody say Mishnah. Mishnah. Go add that to your stack. And this is the Talmud. Everybody say Talmud. 
All right, so, so this is kind of like a collection of, of the rabbinical teachings, right? And some of this comes from those oral traditions that were passed on. Now, because you're all about like oral tradition and speaking stuff, like that's where you don't actually say anything. Really <laughs> you, you don't. And we're just, I should have taken the battery out, but I didn't. I didn't. But they, they really, they said, well, hey, it's not just the Torah, right? Uh, some of the other leaders in Judaism, the Sadducees, they would say, well, it's, it's the Torah. That's it. These five books, that's what we base everything on. The Pharisees were like, no, there's, there's more than that. There's more than that. Are you writing something really good? Oh, this is good. This is good. He's, he's John stuff down. He's getting into this. Really digging into your role. I appreciate that, Derek. So the Pharisees, and this is why I say they got a bad rep, but really they were, they had some good stuff, right? They were strong advocates for holy living, right? They would say, no, this is what the law says, right? If the law is how we live and demonstrate that we're devoted to God, we want to make sure that we're following all of this. And they were, they were strong advocates for holy living. They're like, no, we have to actually live this out. And that kind of connects with, with the, the next element of the Pharisees, right, is they were, they were big on this holistic application. It wasn't just temple worship. They said, no, nah, this affects everything that we do. The way that we live every part of our lives is affected by devotion to the law. So they had this strong devotion to the law. So in today's chapters, we're going to see a little bit about the scribes and the Pharisees. So can we uh, say thank you to Derek the scribe and Frank the Pharisee here? Let me go ahead and just chuck that stuff right up there. Uh, go green team for NTS. Just a little uh, plug there. Side. Oh, <laughs> take it off of my cap. That's all right. So today we're going to look at multiple encounters that Jesus had with scribes and Pharisees. And, and hang with me. Like I said, we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit. But hopefully by the end, it will all make sense. Because we're going we're to kind of see how Jesus navigates some different things with these guys. So we're going to jump into Mark chapter 2. We'll start right in verse 1 of chapter 2. So if you've got the text with you here on your phone, your tablet, good old-fashioned paper Bible, which is my preference... Go ahead and grab Mark chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 1 where it says this. When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. So word has gone round, right, that Jesus is going around, he's doing some pretty cool things, right? So he goes back to Capernaum, and he just, he's got this flock of people, just, they just crowd around him, and he can't even get in the doorway. They came to him, right? So now there's people that are like, man, we can't get in. It says, they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. You guys hear this story? How many people, right? You've heard this story, right? These guys, they dig through the roof, and they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, that's a whole other separate message, but seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes, we just talked about them, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? 
They're like, whoa, this, this isn't right. Like, we, we, we know what's right, and this isn't it. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, remember last week, that was one of the key words that Ryan said from the book of Mark, this word immediately, pop quiz, how many times does it show up? At least, at least 40 times in the book of Mark, this word immediately pops up. So this is one of those key words. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus performs this miracle, and they give glory to God, which is the appropriate response to anything miraculous. We give glory to God. Not any human element involved, glory to God. Now, we're going to jump forward in Mark chapter 2 to verse 23, and we're going to read a little bit there into the first part of chapter 3. So chapter 2, 23 is where we're going to go next, and it says this. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees, we met Frank the Pharisee here a few moments ago, so him and his cohort, they said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? If you ever just, you know, are, are so inclined, and you pick up a copy of the Mishnah, which again is that collection of the rabbinic teachings, they've got a section on the Sabbath, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. Everybody say Shabbat. Shabbat. They've got a whole bunch of rules as to what is and is not allowed on the Sabbath. You know, like, hey, you can pick up a rock this big, but you can't pick up a rock that big. I mean, it's, it's like, it's very, very precise. Like, they, like they had everything down to, like, in, uh, in, in another place in the Gospels, right, it says, oh, it was about a Sabbath's day walk. Because they had determined, well, you can take this many steps on the Sabbath and it's not work. You know, I mean, like they had everything nailed down. Like it was a, it was a science for these guys. So like, why, is, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? He, Jesus, said to them, have you never read what David and those who are, which is awesome, right? Here you've got these religious leaders and Jesus like, oh, like, are you, are you just, you're not familiar with scripture apparently. Like, I don't know, maybe got to, you should go back and read that. Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave some to his companions. Just spoiler, David wasn't a priest, right? He wasn't supposed to eat that, but they were hungry, so they ate it. Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Pretty bold claim that Jesus makes as they question him about the Sabbath. Now, we continue in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and which, again, that's essentially their church building, right? Where they would gather for teaching. And a man was there who had a shriveled hand. 
In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely. Again, this is those religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. But at this point, Jesus has a little bit of a reputation. They're like, hey, let's pay attention, see what he does. We think we can maybe get him on this. He told the man with the shriveled hand, Jesus tells the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, pause. Sometimes in church world, right, we, we deem certain emotions good or bad. And anger is one that kind of gets a bad reputation. We're like, oh, well, it, it's sinful to be angry. Wrong. What we do with our anger can be sinful. But here we have Jesus seeing the the, the heart condition of these religious leaders, these gatekeepers of worship to Yahweh, the one true God. And he's like, oh, you guys, you, you don't get it. And he's angry. He's angry. It says he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, I'm curious. If in this place this morning, somebody came in and they've got like a shriveled up hand, like there's no muscle, there's nothing, like everything's wasted away, right? And they've got this shriveled hand and somebody's like, hey, you know what? Holy Spirit wants to do something here. Boom. And like their hand essentially grows back. How, how are you going to respond to that? Some of y'all, I bet you, I bet you there's some in the room that we'd be skeptical, like, oh, okay, is that like, is that like a trick? Is that, what is that? You know, we might be skeptical. Some of us are probably like, whoa, that's amazing. Like, praise the Lord, right? Like what happened with the paralytic? How do the Pharisees respond? Immediately, there's that word again. The Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Heals this guy miraculously. How do they respond? Uh, we got to kill this guy. That's, I don't know. That's, that's a different response than I think uh, most of us would have. All right. We're going to bounce back. I told you we're pinball on it today. We're about to back to Mark chapter 2 in verse 13. Mark chapter 2 verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. <clears throat> the whole crowd was coming to see him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now you might know Levi better by his other name, which is Matthew. He saw Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, which culturally, that's how they would eat. They didn't sit in chairs around a table like we do. The whole Last Supper painting, total garbage. That's not what it would have looked like. Whatever. While they're reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a. not good people, Right, this, this term is synonymous for those like, nope, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We're not going to let our kids play with them. Like, we're not going to go near their house. But that's who Jesus is at the table with. They're eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. So in this group of sinners and tax collectors, there are many who are following Jesus. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this, this might be more challenging for us, right? In our culture, and maybe you've ever said this, right? If you ever said this, this saying, 
you are what you eat, right? Maybe you said this to like somebody as they're like at Burger King or like, you know, they've got like their fifth Twinkie going down and you're like, ah, you're kind of a Twinkie, you know, like. <clears throat> so we say that kind of tongue in cheek, but a, a, a very real cultural idea at the time of Jesus was this. You are who you eat with. For Jesus to be at the table with sinners and tax collectors, they would have, they would have looked at this as Jesus uh, in some ways approving of their lives. Like, well, these are, do you know what that person does for a living? And they're like, why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because in their culture, you are who you eat with. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Show of hands, who's grateful that Jesus showed up to save a bunch of sinners? Any, anyone grateful for that here this morning? We're going to jump back to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. How's that for like a nice, you know, supportive family? Here's the reality though today. For some of you, maybe that's your story, right? You come to Jesus, right? You live a life modeled after the the life that Jesus calls us to. And maybe you've got family or friends and they say, man, you are out of your mind. Did you go crazy or something? That was the response that Jesus' family had to him. This man, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Everybody say Beelzebul. Now, this could be a reference to the devil himself, or this could be some chief demon. We're not entirely sure, right? but this is definitely somebody connected with Satan in the, in the demonic aspect of the unseen realm. They said he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, maybe you've heard this term, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And over the years, I've heard a couple of different uh, takes on what this means. I would suggest to you that contextually, What Jesus is saying, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is when you give the devil credit for a work of God. You have Jesus performing miraculous signs. He's driving demons out of people, casting these demons out. And the religious leader said, ah, you're doing this by the power of Satan. The things that he did in his own power and through the power of Holy Spirit, they gave the devil credit for that. I would suggest to you that's what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. You don't have to agree with me. Do some research. Don't take my word for anything. Do some research. But 
you have these religious leaders. And over all of these narratives that we just kind of bounced around through, I would suggest that there are two themes that pop up. I think we see the religious leaders, they question Jesus' authority and his associations. Right? In our first narrative, they say, man, who are you to say that this man's sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And then as Jesus is going around doing these things on the Sabbath, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do this. And Jesus has to remind them, hey, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He has to continually like put him, no, hey, uh, guys, uh, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. When he's acting from his own power, his own authority, they give the devil credit. So they question his authority and they question his associations. He goes and he's hanging out. You could double dip on that last one, right? They're saying, oh man, you're, you're actually part of the, the kingdom of demons. That's who you're associated with. But then you look at the, the narrative with Matthew and, and how he calls Matthew and then goes to his house. He's, he's eating with him. And they're like, oh, who are you hanging out with? But this man, you shouldn't be doing that. And I think these two things are, are relevant to us here today because I think in some ways we are guilty of the same things, right? When we question the authority of Jesus, it's, it's where we say, who are you to, and you fill in the blank with a variety of things. You say, well, Jesus, who are you to tell me who I can or can't sleep with? We say, nah, nah, you can't, you can't tell me that. We live in a cultural moment right now where our, our broader culture actually designates this month to take pride in something that Scripture tells us is sinful. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. And I'm not here to critique that. What I'm critiquing is the fact that there are many churches and even more Christians that have grabbed onto that same philosophy and that's where it becomes a problem. We say to Jesus, who are you to tell me that what I did was wrong? We have such this, this relative approach to things now, right? Like, it's my truth, and it's, it's your truth, and it's your truth. And, and hey, it's cool. Like, you just go ahead with your truth. Well, unless it disagrees with my truth and it infringes it, then I'm going to say something about your truth. But until then, it's probably okay. So who, who is this Jesus guy to tell me that something that I think or did or believe is wrong? And we question his authority. Who are you, Jesus, to command that I love the person who hurt me? Hear me. This is not to minimize the things that you've walked through in life. This isn't to say that the things that those people did were okay. But Jesus calls us to love both those that we get along with and those that we don't get along with. But we say, no, Lord, if, if you knew what they did, he does know what they did. But we say, oh, mm, 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 mm. just not that person I can't. Jesus says, everybody, everybody. Who are you, Jesus, to tell me how I should spend my money? 
That gets some of us a little fired up, right? Jesus says, hey, I want you to pursue heavenly riches, not earthly riches. I want you to make heavenly investments, kingdom investments, not earthly investments. Now, I'm not, not, like, you can invest, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, but what's our focus? Is our focus on building my kingdom? Or am I utilizing the things that I have to build his kingdom? I think many of us at times, we question the authority of Jesus the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees did. I was listening to a podcast uh, a week or so ago. Pastor JB sent it to me. And uh, it was Francis Chan. It was his crazy love podcast. And he, he said something there. And I was like, whoa, like that's, that's really good. So I jotted down. And I want to share that quote with you. He says, he says this in that podcast. When I disagree with this book, the Bible, I assume I'm wrong. When I disagree, when I'm flipping through the pages and I find something that's challenging, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." I assume I'm the one that has to change. Not this. You guys tracking with me? I want us to wrestle with the question in your life, where do you question the authority of Jesus? What are areas of your life where you say, Lord, who are you to, you fill in the blank. Several years ago, this was, this was before I was married, I was on a family vacation with my parents and my siblings. We were up in northern Michigan. We had borrowed my grandpa's boat for this particular vacation, just a little, you know, 12-foot fishing boat. My dad, my younger brother, Andrew, and myself were out on the boat. We, we motored out to the middle of the lake. We're, we're fishing. We're doing all this, that, good old time. After a while, we're like, hey, let's go check out a different spot. Well, we couldn't get the motor started. No big deal. There's a pair of oars right here in the boat. So I'm sitting in the middle at the time, and so I just start, I start rowing. And I'm like, man, like we're just, we're not making a lot of progress here. It's super slow going. My dad, my dad, he's just, you know, if you've ever met my dad, he's just, he's jacked. He's like just super ripped guy. <laughs> if you've met my dad, you, yeah, yeah. But he is, my, my dad is strong. He is, he is, he is very strong. Uh, so he, we switch seats. I, I go to the back. He sits in the middle. And my dad is like cranking. I honestly thought he was going to bust an oar. Like he's like, he's like lifting his butt off the seat, like hauling. We're getting nowhere. Like it's, I don't know, 10 minutes. We're just like hauling on these oars. My little brother, Andrew, he's, well, he's not little. I mean, so my younger brother, Andrew, he's sitting in the front. And after this 10 minutes of rowing, he, and he says to us, hey, uh, should I pull up the anchor? Like, <laughs> We said, yes, 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 you should. (laughs) Some of us in the room are maybe frustrated. Here, we talk a lot about transformation. We talk about how Holy Spirit comes in and and he changes us from within and it is this, this total life transformation. And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I just, I haven't experienced, like, that doesn't mean, no, like, 
I haven't experienced that. And you're frustrated. You're like, I'm doing the things, man. I'm, I'm reading the Bible. Like, I'm going to church. I'm doing all this stuff. Like, I'm sweating like a pig. I'm like, all this. Maybe for some of us, our life is still anchored in a system where we are in charge. Where we are the ultimate authority, not Jesus. And so all the stuff we're doing, we're not going anywhere. We're not experiencing the transforming power of Holy Spirit. Because we want the transformation, but we also want to stay in charge. And it doesn't work like that. To follow Jesus, you don't get to be in charge. I don't get to be in charge. It means when we come to his word and we struggle with things, we assume we're wrong, not this. You guys tracking with me? In our lives, where do we question the authority of Jesus? Uh, Dear sister Peggy gave me a note after first service, and she wrote the question, are you anchored in the world or in the word? Where is your life anchored? But we see the other theme, right? The the religious leaders questioned Jesus' authority. They made those who are you to questions. They also questioned his associations. They said, who are you with and who are you for? I mean, why are you hanging out with all these sinners? And Jesus told them, he says, man, because these are the ones that need me. This is who I came for. So I want us to, to wrestle with this a little bit. So if you look at your life, are you for one another? We've talked about this. Pastor Pam, right, in her message on community, she talked about all the, all the one another's. You can't read scripture and get away from that. The way that we are called to interact with one another. Jesus said this in John 13. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. That's the standard. The way Jesus loved, that's the way we are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The proof is in the pudding. And the pudding is made up of how well we love one another. So is that who we're for? And I think that can look a couple of different ways, right? But that, that, that looks like community. Are we engaged in community? Are we for and with one another? Do we invest in that? Do we pursue unity with one another? Or do we grab onto divisions and say, well, mm, I'm pretty sure I know who they voted. I saw that bumper sticker on their car. Mm -mm, I don't think this is going to work. Come on. We let silly things like political party affiliations separate us from part of the body of Christ. And that's messed up. Are we for one another? Are you for the poor? There's a guy, I think he's the, I don't know if he's still the the head of uh, World Vision, 
but a guy named Richard Stearns, he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. And kind of as, a, as an experiment, he went through and, and cut out every verse in Scripture that had to do with the poor. And he was, his Bible was a whole lot lighter by the time he was done than when he started. You can't get away from the call for how we engage with one another. You can't get away from the Father's heart for the poor as you read Scripture. Now, Jesus is having a conversation, and, and in context, he's, he's talking to people about how they shouldn't jockey for position. They shouldn't pursue these places of prominence. And he kind of, he kind of gives them a, a polar opposite example that I think also gives us a, a little glimpse into his heart. He, Jesus, also said to the one who had invited him, right, because he's had a, he's had a, a meal with some people. He says, when you give her a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. Hear me, hear me. Again, we read full counsel of scripture. This isn't saying you don't ever have dinner with your friends, because we just talked about one another. But he's talking about how we jockey. So he, he, he sets up this kind of more extreme example, but I, I still think we glimpse the heart of the Father on this. On the contrary... When you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. I want you to just call to mind the last time you had a group of people over to your house for dinner. Is this who made up your invite list? Anyone? Anyone? I can't raise my hand. Right? But I mean, is this how we, is this how we approach things? Are we, we willing to pursue the people that, man, that, those people smell funny? Right? Maybe, I don't know, that, that, that person looks sketchy. They're, they're, talking an awful lot and there's nobody else with them. Uh, and I'm not pointing at you, John. I'm, 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 uh, but he says, man, this is, this is who we're after. He says, invite those people in and then you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This goes back to that idea of kingdom investment. Kingdom investment. Man, are you for these people? Right? When, you, when you go about thinking, oh, who do, what do I want to do this, this week? How much of your time and energy goes into investing in the people that don't have those resources? James, the half-brother of Jesus, whom earlier, right, he would have likely been in this group that thought Jesus was out of his mind. But at some point, he changed. Because James becomes a key leader in the early church. I don't know, your brother says he's going to die and then come back to life and then he does it. I'd, I'd probably be sold, right? I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go along with this thing. But James writes this in James chapter one. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Culturally, Widows and orphans, they, had, they didn't have support, right? These are people in need, right? Women didn't get a whole lot of good treatment in this culture, right? Like you, all of your provision came through your husband or your father. If you're a widow, your husband is dead. You may or may not have anything left, right? As an orphan, you don't have a family to take care of you. I don't know that orphanages were a thing, right? So you've got these people that they don't have the ability to provide for themselves, James tells us, man, you want to really live out this thing? That's who you take care of. That's who you focus on. You guys tracking with me? Are you for the hurting? 
Man, you don't have to look far to find people that are living in the midst of brokenness. Right? Maybe you've got, you've got these people. Maybe this person is sitting next to you. Maybe you are that person. Man, we've all got varying degrees of brokenness. But there are people around us that are hurting. Are we for those people? Jesus claimed a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4. Jesus says this of himself. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There's the poor again. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there was was a spiritual reality to what Jesus just said. Again, a lot of the people in Jesus' culture were waiting for the Messiah to do all of these things literally and physically, and he did a lot of these things literally and physically. There's also a spiritual reality. But I think this shows us, again, the heart of, of Jesus. He says, man, I came for the broken. Are we for the people in the midst of their suffering? Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 is having a conversation about the church as the body. And he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. He says, so if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If you have people in your life and they're hurting they're suffering. Are those the people that you're for? Are those the people that you seek to spend time with? Unfortunately, I think some of us, right, like, we're like, man, I got my own mess to take care of. So we, we dig this moat around ourselves, mentally, physically, emotionally. We dig this moat around us and we fill it with alligators and spiky sticks and all kinds of things because, man, we don't need none of that mess in here. That's not the way of Jesus That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus is for the hurting. Are we for the hurting? And lastly, are you for the lost? Now, from this stage, numerous times, numerous times, Pastor Ryan has brought this passage out of Luke 19. Jesus makes this statement as kind of his his mission. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the who? The lost. That's why he came. That was his mission. Yesterday, uh, our staff and and, uh, actually some of the worship team, which mad props, Caleb and Bethany, both of who are up here today, uh, they went up to Grand Rapids on Friday, and they were up in Grand Rapids Friday and Saturday. We had a regional conference for the Wesleyan Church yesterday. Uh, For those of you that didn't know, we are a Wesleyan Church. And we had a regional conference yesterday. And uh, yeah, so they did pull double, like triple duty. Like they did worship yesterday, Caleb and Bethany did. And then they still came in here super early this morning. So if you see Caleb and and Karen, I can't see Karen with this light in my eye. And Karen, uh, Diane was out there. So a bunch of our team was out there uh, just ministering. If you see them, give them a fist bump. but Chris Conrad, our, our, our regional superintendent, has, has shared this time and time again, right? The Great Lakes region is comprised of Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. We're called the Great Lakes region. And in that region, they've done the research, there are 22 million people who don't know Jesus. 22 million people 
that, that don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And that number seems insurmountable. We're like, holy moly, that's a lot of people. But guess what? Some of those 22 million are your friends. They're your family. They're your neighbors. They're your coworkers. Do we live on mission with Jesus in pursuit of the lost? Because guess what? You can't go after the 22 million, but you can go after one. Are we for the lost? So the second question that I want to ask this morning is, in your life, do your associations reflect the heart and mission of Jesus? Are you with and for the people that Jesus was with and for? Is this making sense? I would suggest to you this morning to follow Jesus is to submit to his authority and to live out his mission. To follow Jesus is to submit to his authority to say, hey, if you said it, maybe I don't agree, maybe I don't like it, maybe it's not my personal preference, but Lord, if if that's what you said, that's what I'm going to go with. And we submit to his authority. And we say, man, Jesus, if your mission was this, and if your heart was for this group of people and this group of people, man, cultivate in me a heart that is for this group of people and this group of people, because I want to be on mission with you. The call of discipleship, and, and you know, Pastor Ryan has shared this one from the stage numerous times as well. Jesus is talking, and he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily, and follow me. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It is a daily death to self. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian and martyr, says when Christ calls a man, he, he bids him come and die. We don't get to, to keep our flag up as the one in charge. We say, nope, Lord, it's, it's, it's you, your authority. We don't say, well, I don't really like this group of people. Uh, Jesus, man, your heart is for all those people. I want to be with those people. I want to be for those people. So my final question, I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up at this time. Uh, jot this down. I want you to wrestle with this. Are you more like the Pharisees or the followers? Whose authority is your life anchored in? And who are you with and for? more of a Pharisee or a follower. I want to invite the prayer teams to, uh, to the corners here this afternoon. Because I want us to grapple with this. We're going we're gonna to sing a song called, Is He Worthy? And I think that, that ties in really well. We didn't, they didn't play this song because of the message. This was already on the list. It's, it's almost like Holy Spirit knows what's going on or something. I don't but they were gonna, they've got this song, and I thought, man, that's, that's, a really good, that's a really good song. It's a really good question for us to ask. 
Because we might say, oh, yeah, God, he's, he's awesome. But then we still want to retain control. What we're saying is, Jesus, no, no, Jesus in, in my life, you're not actually worthy to be in charge. Because I know some things that you don't. And, and so I've just got to kind of maintain control of this one right here. Is he worthy? Is he more worthy than your political affiliations? So we're going to sing this song, and I want, I want, you, to, I want you to wrestle with this. Uh, we've got our prayer teams on, on, on either side of the, of the platform here, and uh, I want to encourage you, utilize them. Man, if, if you're wrestling with something, and even if you're not wrestling with something, just, and you just want to be lifted up in prayer, come on and, and, and see them down on the front. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and just drop something. Right? There's something you're trying to carry that isn't yours to carry. There's something you're trying to maintain control of that isn't yours to control. Maybe you just got to come to the altar and, and kind of let go of that up here this afternoon. Thanks for listening to this message from Radiant Life Church. To get to know us better, check out theradiantlife.church. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.